Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. This is Dr. Terry Gibbs, your host, and today I'm with Kristen Carpenter, Dr. Kristen Carpenter, and she's an associate professor in the departments of psychiatry and behavioral health, psychology, and obstetrics and gynecology at Ohio State University College of Medicine. She's a chief psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health, and she's the director of women's behavioral health at the OSU Wexner Medical Center. Today, we're continuing our discussion of mental health issues on sexual health. And today, we're going to focus on the effect of serious illness, physical illness on mental health and their impact on sexual health. And so thank you, uh, Dr. Carpenter, for coming on the the podcast with us today. You have a tremendous uh, expertise in this area. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I I wanted to start off our discussion with um, just a general uh, question, if you'd give us a general comment. I'm reading so much in the literature about uh, mental health in the women's health arena today. I, you know, young women, uh, pregnancy, uh, postpartum, uh, uh, menopause. We're seeing things happening at the governmental level. Just, it seems to be a crisis. Would you comment on that? Sure. It is a tough time right now as we can cons- I mean, it's a tough political climate for many things. And as we consider the struggles associated with uh, women's mental health and women's health, I think it's a, it goes all the way back to the way we are educated. I think the struggles we see around the peripartum, the struggles we see around menopause, many of the struggles we see through and in between have to do with a lack of preparedness. Uh, from from young ages, I think that the education that we give our girls and young women about their bodies, how they function, what to expect, uh, isn't what it could be. And so when we sort of march through these experiences that can be, you know, many of which are universal, you know, menopause is universal if you make it to menopausal age. Many of these experiences are near universal or extremely common, and yet we still walk into them with many surprises. Right. And I think that that is part of what contributes to the distress people experience. Uh, I think it can be quite lonely, which compounds, you know, once you start to struggle, uh, there's a loneliness associated with not knowing who to turn to, not knowing what questions to ask, feeling like you're struggling more than your peers, your friends, your family members are struggling more than you expected. And so I think it it then becomes sort of shrouded in this, this quiet uh, that doesn't help anyone. And I think we could do a lot of good in terms of improving education for our patients, education for our young women and girls. And this is a great place to start that because some of our education will come from families, some will come from schools, but certainly some of it comes from providers. Well, thank you for that comment because it just seems to be a crisis right now. And I think we would do well in listening to people like you. I want to start the discussion regarding serious uh physical health um, and sexual health. We read so much and there's so much written about female sexual dysfunction in women without serious medical illness. But how much more female sexual dysfunction is seen in women with 
uh, serious medical illnesses like cancer. So what the data would suggest that rates of diagnosable sexual dysfunction are higher among same-aged women with uh, a cancer diagnosis than in otherwise healthy women. Many of these studies come from samples of women with breast and gynecologic cancer. Certainly most of the studies come from women with solid tumor disease, in part because those are, are high on the list of sort of numbers, right? But what we see even in smaller studies of women with other cancers, with hematologic malignancies, uh, head and neck, some of these other illnesses, is that the rates of sexual complaint and diagnosable sexual dysfunction do tend to be a bit higher uh, as a result of the you know sequelae of the disease, the disease itself, those processes, and then the changes that occur due to treatment. And that leads me to my second question. Um, it might be a little bit obvious, but I'd love to hear you talk about this is uh, what are the effects of cancer that make it so devastating on one's sexual health? Well, I think the the impacts can be many fold, right? Like cancer is, as we, as we all know, cancer is not one illness. It's many, many illnesses, all with their own idiosyncrasies, uh, their own impacts and their own um, treatment trajectories, right? And so first, I think it's important, you know, if we are to take them as a cluster, which is useful, I think it's important to think about the kinds of experiences that are universal. So when I talk with patients about their sexual health following a cancer diagnosis and treatment, I try to cluster things into three buckets. So there's sort of anatomical changes that might take place due to surgeries or radiation therapies. There are physiologic changes and hormonal changes that might take place due to surgery or radiation, but also some of the systemic treatments that we give patients, chemotherapy, some of our oral agents. Um, and then the third bucket is really sort of the psychological and emotional changes that come with cancer diagnosis and treatment. It is a, a difficult thing to wrap your head around that big C word. It's a difficult thing to wrap your head around what it means for you, your loved ones, your family. And there are a number of role shifts that take place over the course of diagnosis and treatment that have impact on how a patient views themselves, man or women, right? Um, how a patient views themselves, how they view themselves in the world, how they view themselves as a person in relationships, whether they be intimate, sexual, romantic, or otherwise. Um, and so there's kind of these three big considerations that matter. And for every individual patient, it's a different constellation of experiences. Um, but it's you know it's fairly straightforward to see how anatomical, physiologic, and social emotional changes can influence one's sexual life. When do you try and bring up the idea of sexual health and uh, what to do about it in, in a new cancer patient uh, just gotten the diagnosis and just getting into therapy? I mean, my recommendation is to bring it up early and often. Uh, typically, by the time someone shows up in my office. Um, they have already identified, and issues already have been identified and they've been sent to me. But I do think it's important to bring it up early in the disease trajectory, but to also continue um, to have that conversation with patients very often uh, at the beginning, you know, sort of in that post-diagnosis, perhaps pre-surgery phase, if a patient is going to go under a surgical evaluation, it's really overwhelming. There's a lot being thrown at the patient. And that, that is true if they begin 
with an adjuvant therapy as well. If they begin with chemo, if they begin with radiation, there is a lot happening in those early days. I do think it's important to let patients know that their sexual health can and most likely will be affected by their treatments. But sometimes that's not the best time for an individual to try to get her head around that. Um, and so what I encourage providers to do and what we actually do at the James through some of the, the instruments that we use at patient visits is to give a prompt about sexual health multiple times. And what you know many of our uh, physician staff, nursing staff tell me is that if they bring up sexual health with patients early, it might not be the first time that they kind of bite on that hook. It might not be the second time, but maybe down the line, if they begin that conversation and keep it going, a patient will eventually say, yeah, this is something I could use some help with. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because um, you know anybody that's worked with people um, in um, with cancer, whether you're the cancer doctor or not, you, you, there's a large unmet need um, regarding sexual issues. And would you comment on that? Why, why is there such a large unmet need? You, you just discussed it in such a simple way, but, but, but it's just not happening. Well, I think that the unmet need comes from multiple directions, right? You know, patients agree that it is an issue. Many patients when surveyed will tell you, this is an issue for me. The vast majority of providers will say, this is something I should be talking to my patients about. Uh, but it is it remains the case that patients don't ask and providers tend not to bring it up. And so I think the barriers really are manifold. Um, when you look at surveys of providers, what they tend to say is, I should bring it up, but I don't. And when you ask them why, the responses tend to cluster into, I lack the necessary expertise to help my patient. Uh, I lack referral resources to uh, send my patient to, and I don't have enough time. So those are the kind of the three general themes that we see in the provider literature. When you look at the patient literature, patients tend to say, I don't want to embarrass my provider. I'm not sure how to bring it up. And I'm not sure my provider could be helpful on this front. So if we kind of walk it back to the provider side of this cluster of things where it's, you know, I don't have the expertise, I don't have the referral resources, I don't have the time. I think setting realistic expectations about those conversations is really important. Um, no one expects a medical oncologist, surgical oncologist to be expert in sex therapy, but any trained medical provider, whether they be an APP, an RN, a physician, a surgeon, is trained to ask patients questions, is trained to help patients, you know, process answers. And so if you can ask those questions, just, you know, and I favor an open-ended question as opposed to a closed-ended one. So, you know, some patients experience sexual difficulties following their diagnosis and treatments. Tell me how things are going. And then it gives the patient sort of the opportunity to say, and Anybody can ask that question. Anybody can open that door. It is important to be able to have resources to point patients to. Um, many patients do well with simple psychoeducation. Um, and so having, it does mean you have to prepare, but having a ready resource in terms of patient education materials. Oh, the American Cancer Society has a wonderful website, Sexuality for the Woman with Cancer, I think is its current title. It changes kind of every few years, but they have lovely resources for patients just to understand what different treatments 
impacts could be on their sexual health. Um, we at Ohio State have patient education materials that we've worked on that you can download. There are a number of other resources out there where patients even asynchronously can get information. Um, and then it's important to try to find you know, one to two referral resources in community in your community. There are psychologists that work in this area, social workers, counselors. It's also great to have linkage with a team of pelvic floor physical therapists. They do wonders with our patients um, and often will have that linkage to other sorts of mental and behavioral health resources down the line. And so I think, you know, being able to open up the door and then setting realistic expectations for what you can do in the office are the two biggest strategies one can use to overcome those barriers. Um, let's drill down on that. that that's sure. a wonderful explanation. You you gave me a, an article that just was off the charts wonderful um, that you were one of the co-authors of uh, on how to ask and what to do. And it's just this wonderful expose of what you were uh, just kind of been going through in written form, both for, uh, you know, the patient and the doctor. And I really loved the, the, just the very simple checklist uh, that you uh, wrote in the paper about the five A's. And, and certainly this has come from a lot of experience. I mean, they're, they're kind of like the obvious things, but that's come from a lot of experience and, and, just would you comment on those five A's just for a minute? Sure. The five A's, there are a handful of kind of different um, little acronyms to describe how do we intervene, right? So PLICIT is Jack Annan's model from the 70s, where it's what are the levels of sexual health intervention? And the five A's essentially is one of those. Uh, it's just slightly simplified, honestly. And so the A's are ask, advise, assess, assist, and arrange. And so what you're doing is you know, asking a question about patient sexual health, advising them that problems are common and that they can be addressed and kind of normalizing their experience, providing some kind of assessment of what the issue is. And that can be really brief. So in the, in the paper, we have a very short checklist so that patients can kind of identify domains in which they're struggling. Assist is where you provide patients with education, information, and resources. That's that kind of asynchronous bit I was mentioning before that, you know, hey, there's some really good educational materials out there that you can read, and then you can come back to me with additional questions, and then arrange follow-up. So if you've identified a patient who is saying that she is struggling, is asking for help, arranging those referrals for the individual. And it is, it's a fairly simple, straightforward process. Patients can get long-winded about these kinds of issues. And so I do think you have to use your provider tools to keep the conversation moving um, and use your extenders. If you're a physician, use your extenders to help extend this conversation. But really within five to 10 minutes, you can get a lot of information from a patient about what she's going through and have a pretty good sense of what she might need next. Maybe not what she might need holistically, but, you know, and no one expects you to become a sex therapist in the office, unless that's something that you wish to do. And there are ways to do that. But you really can take a patient a long way in a relatively short period of time if you educate yourself about what's available and are willing to have that conversation. You you put in some uh, advice uh, things on, you know, uh, anxiety, pain with sex and, and vaginal dryness and some of these things that are very commonly found in, in this population. Um, what, what if a physician is like, like, 
some of your uh, medical oncology uh, colleagues that they're very shy about that. I mean, how many times have I gotten a patient that's like, dude, I cannot talk about this. Uh, I just yeah. don't know what to do. Uh, how would you help them? How would you hold their hand? Well, I am a cognitive behavioral therapist. And so for me, anxiety is a, is a, is a slam dunk. If you, if something makes you anxious, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Um, and so you certainly can overcome that anxiety, that discomfort with more practice. But I also, again, like be realistic about what you are good at. So if all you can do is say, you know, Hey, are you having some trouble in this area? Uh, and if the patient says, yes, if you need an extender, if you need another member of your practice or another member of the care community within which you work to have that conversation more fully with the patient, then do that. But make sure that you then arrange that conversation for the patient, right? And I mean, the more you ask, the easier it gets. I imagine at some point it was also really hard to talk to patients about prognosis. It was really hard to talk to patients about the various impacts of their treatments. And you learn to do that. Through that, I, I've had some of my sexual medicine colleagues say to especially the gynecologist, geez, you, you, you talk about vaginal infections, like what's up with you know, being embarrassed about sexual matters. So there's so many things we do talk about that we're so used to, but but here's something that we're so shy about. So uh, that's great. Uh, you know, when it comes to especially people out in Timbuktu, Ohio or wherever, and mm-hmm. uh, they have a, a, a cancer patient, and I'm finding um, that people that live out in the boonies, if you will, I shouldn't say that. I not not that that's bad, but it's out rural, yeah. um, and th- they they really sometimes a lot of those people hate coming to the big city, and uh, they just don't want to drive. And and in these days of virtual visits, uh, this has really been uh, a great tool. Um, what, what would you advise some of the uh, medical people out in these rural areas on, on getting help with some of these issues? I mean, truly, that's one of the things, you know, so Ohio State, like many academic medical centers, is a tertiary referral center. So we have patients coming here to the James for care from all over Ohio, from West Virginia, from Kentucky, you know, people come far and wide to receive care here. Two, three hours is not an uncommon driving distance for some of the patients that we care for. And it has been, if there is a silver lining in the dramatic shift to telehealth that we experience, especially in behavioral health, because of the pandemic, it is that patients can more easily access the kind of care that we offer at a place with more comprehensive services. I think in many of the kinds of communities that you're describing, when, you know, sort of the doc that seeing the patient is really the only game in town for all of that patient's needs, um, there is a lot of pressure. There is a lot of demand on that individual. And so the fact that we can now see patients relatively easily and simply with telehealth is fantastic. It does get a little bit tricky with something like physical therapy. If someone wants to go to pelvic floor physical therapy, there's usually a period of time with those visits, especially if there's stenosis or significant pain with penetration where there needs to be manipulation or stimulation. Um, They may need to come in a few times, but in the longer course of care, if there are exercises they can be doing at home, you know, we can sort of triage that care 
a little bit so that patients really only come in when they have to, as opposed to sort of as a matter of course. And so I think it really has opened the doors within any given state. Uh, most behavioral health practitioners can see anyone within state lines. There are also cooperative agreements. Like for psychologists, we have something called SIPACT, which essentially is if you register as a SIPAC provider, you can see any patient who resides in any SIPAC state. And now I think it is something like 30 some odd states are part of that cooperative arrangement. And so it really opens the door for patients to be cared for. Um, by people with the right expertise. And the, the show notes today will will reflect, uh, you know, your article and some of the resources you've talked about. But if if we were to put, say, your your office phone number, it, it, could a patient, you know, reach out to your office and arrange one of these virtual meetings? Is, is, is that available? My office phone number? Yeah. <laughs> well... I'm not going to give my actual office phone number, but if somebody calls our main line and asks for our services, so the program here at Ohio State, we call it's Women's Intimacy and Sexual Health. And okay. if someone calls and asks for our services, yes, we will okay. either schedule or put them on our list to be called. And we don't have a terrible wait. We do move through patients, but there's three of us here at OSU that do this work together as a team. Um, we are well you know, linked with our oncology staff and our physical therapy staff, that sort of thing as well. But um, yeah, if a patient were to call and and ask to be seen, we will see them. Okay, that, that's terrific. I'm just, I want to put it out there that, you know, people can actually do that. Um, yes. That it and wasn't I, just a some, statement. You know. No, it's not just a statement. And there are some really nice, and I can provide these to you, Terry. There's some nice, um, you know, ASECT is the... Oh, I'll get it wrong, but ASECT is an organization that certifies sex therapists, educators, and counselors. They have a provider directory that allows you to search and find providers who do sex therapy in any local community. Um, the ABCT, uh, the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, has a similar find a provider mechanism. And so there are ways to find people within local communities as well. And I can provide you with some of those links that you can put in the notes. That'd be awesome. Finally, I, I want to take, you know, this is a great conversation about, uh, you know, really trying to cover uh, people's sexual con concerns and, and actually talking with them. Um, but as a scholar in this field, um, we, we've talked and we're going to encourage anybody who comes in contact with these patients to to talk to them, to ask them the question, no matter what, you know, what level of comfort they have in answering these questions. But but what are some of the um, areas of need to be researched and developed still in this area, in your opinion? I mean, we have known, I think the earliest citation that I talk about when I talk about sexual health in cancer patients is a study, I think it's 1975, uh, Vincent Vincent Grice and Linton is the reference, that observed high rates of difficulty with sexual function and behavior that, you know, documented that very clearly. Uh, we have decades and decades of research on the prevalence of sexual problems in these populations. Um, it is nice to have that refreshed, 
But what we really need, in my opinion, is in terms of like the basic science of it is what are the mechanisms and are there opportunities to intervene at the mechanism? So are there ways very much like with chemotherapy, with nausea, um, are there ways that we could clearly combat some of this? I think some of that mechanistic work will help many people in the long run. Um, But the second piece is there are effective intervention studies of sexual health interventions with cancer patients. We know that there are techniques, tools, and interventions that we can use. They are mostly psychological and behavioral, but we know that there is a lot we can do for patients. So I I really feel like the next phase in this domain um, was twofold. One, we need to figure out how to scale these things and get them to more people. You know, how we can actually get them delivered effectively to patients, because there are evidence-based interventions for many of these issues. The second piece is I think we, and it is critical to that goal of dissemination studies for some of these interventions, is taking those steps back to educating our provider community about how they can begin to share information with their patients. What are the kind of most effective and cost-effective ways to get that information out there and then provide that linkage to these interventions that we know are helpful. So I guess that's three things, right? Like how do we educate our patients? How do we disseminate the interventions that we know are effective? And how do we fill in those gaps around some of the questions around mechanism and other therapeutic opportunities in between? Well, that's fabulous. Well, I I really appreciate, you know, you uh, taking some time with me today. Do you have any parting shots? I always call them parting shots for us. Any any last uh, morsels of wisdom that you would drop our way before we say goodbye? I do. I think there is a need. And as you said very early, that need is unmet. And the things that resonate most for me is, and that kind of keep propelling me through this are the patient interactions that I've had and the stories I've been told. And so I think if you can take a moment to ask this question, you know, we've done, I've done now so many studies in this area and have, you know, hundreds of women that have come through and um, participated either in observational studies or in some of our intervention work. And I often ask them why, you know, why did you decide to participate in this to begin with? Like what made you agree to do this? And sometimes it's an icebreaker and sometimes I'm just, curious. And I had one woman, and this is the one that I will always carry, I think. Uh, She was in her 60s, was an ovarian cancer survivor, and came to us probably two or three years out from diagnosis to participate in the intervention work. And she said, you know, when I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, I knew that I was going to die. But now I know I'm going to live. And if I'm going to live, I want to live fully. And so I think the piece of it to remember is that when you take these sort of extra moments in your patient interaction, when you take the time to learn a little bit about this, you, that is what you are doing. Like you are not going to be the full answer for that patient, but you are going to help them on their journey to living fully on that path to living the way they wish. Um, And that in and of itself, I think is one of the most rewarding bits and parts of all of this. Well, thanks again for your expertise, your, your heart and your excitement and your passion for this is obvious. And we really appreciate your time, Kristen. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much for having me. 
And I, I'm going to ask our followers uh, to follow us on Facebook and Instagram because we'd love your feedback on today's podcast and Dr. Carpenter's article that will be in the show notes. And uh, we thank you for, for visiting this podcast today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Men. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.